Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> uh, hello, listeners. We got a very special episode for you all. Um, we had the opportunity to interview our former professor from Iowa, uh, and it's a very special, in-depth interview about his life, uh, his journey to dramaturgy, the playwriting program itself at Iowa. Um, so yeah, we are really, we were just really fortunate and happy to have him, and we hope you enjoyed the show. Enjoy. Already has started off. Real Just well. keep it, keep it. Yeah. Hello, listeners. You're listening <laughs> to another episode of Beckett's Babies. We're your hosts, Sarah Cho and Sam Collier, and today we are joined by a most special and distinguished guest, Art Baraka. He's an associate professor of dramaturgy, dramatic literature, and theater history, co-head of the playwriting program, and head of the dramaturgy program at the University of Iowa. He has worked as a dramaturg with a number of leading theater artists, including Athel Fugard, Wole Shoyinka, Theodora Skipitaris, David Goddard, and Naomi Wallace in such venues as the Yale Repertory Theater, New York Theater Workshop, La Mama ETC, Oxford Stage Company in the UK, and Theater Project Tokyo in Japan. Art, welcome to Beckett's Babies. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're so excited to talk to you about um, theater and dramaturgy, but as we do with all our guests, we want to start with, um, what was your earliest memory before you ever heard of theater? I thought your first question would be, what is dramaturgy? <laughs> um, earliest memory, meaning uh, just any, just the earliest Yes, as a, as a child, yeah. Um, well... You know, I don't know how much of this is true, but I have an earliest memory that I always come to when this question comes up. It's become the earliest memory. There may, you know, may have in fact been others, but um, I have very vivid um, memory of uh, playing on the floor of uh, the living room as like a four-year-old Um and my mother used to watch As the World Turns every day. It was her soap opera. <laughs> and Walter Cronkite came on uh, in the middle of that. And I'm, I didn't know this at the time, but he, he, he came on and, and you know announced that shots had rung out in Dallas at Kennedy's oh, Motorcade. Whoa. And so my memory specifically is I'm playing and then I hear her go, oh, my God. Wow. So it was like... <laughs> And um, uh, it's interesting. I learned later that she and my father had voted for Nixon, but <laughs> but um, 
they were both, um, uh, you know, first generation, second generation. Let's see, their parents came from Italy and Ireland. That would make them um, second generation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, second generation immigrant Catholic um, people. <laughs> um, and my mother, I think, really had become enamored of Kennedy, the first Catholic president. Um, so anyway, that memory is very um, specific and also kind of dramatic when you think about it. Yeah. Because um, that weekend. What were weekend, you playing with? Do you remember? You know, I can picture it, but I don't know what it was called. It was a construction type of thing, sort of like Lincoln Logs. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, uh-huh. But it was um, plastic, and I remember making little bridges out of it. <laughs> um, I think around that time, people started saying I was going to be an architect or an engineer. Um, uh-huh. But um, so, yeah, and then I remember that the the following days i remember the tv being on all the time on all the events surrounding kennedy's funeral and i remember um i think the next dramatic moment i remember is when uh, oswald was shot by jack ruby um i remember there being a reaction in the room <laughs> about that not really knowing what was going on <laughs> um so that's that's uh I claim that as my earliest memory. <laughs> mm. um, and I, when I think about it, I can't think of anything earlier or even that much from really around that time other than that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't really start remembering specifics until like a year later when I was five, kindergarten age. Mm-hmm. Wow. That is that is very dramatic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It may have had something to do with this uh, this interest in drama. Mm. Um, we had a actually, uh, my mother had purchased later on, and I still have it. Um, in fact, I have it right here in uh, where in, in the the study, as we call it, um, uh, a Kennedy Memorial album that had um, a compilation of his speeches that a local radio station in New York had put together on the day of his assassination. And um, I used to listen to that. Well, it's interesting. I used to, there were two things I used to listen to. One was that, all those Kennedy speeches with that, that Kennedy cadence, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I used to listen to this other album that my mother had called The First Family, which was a very popular comedy album that had been recorded, of course, before Kennedy's assassination. There was an impersonator named Vaughn Meter who had made his entire career uh, around his impersonation of Kennedy. And um, it was just a series of uh, sketches with him playing Kennedy. And, um, and my mother used to, when I would listen to that, she would sort of discourage it like it was sacrilegious to be making fun of the dead president. But um, this was several years after, so I think she she, uh, didn't discourage it that much. So it's interesting to me to think, I said it was a dramatic memory, but yeah, there is something about that Kennedy Kennedy connection in terms of the the theater of his, you know, his particular 
um, speech making ability, and yeah. then then listening to those comedy sketches and uh, satirizing um, satirizing that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and and if I go on for too much, if I go on for too much longer, I might have to go into my Kennedy impersonation. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, that's so funny. All right, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do it. You can't stop me. Yeah, we uh, want to so hear it. We want to hear it. Do it. Do it. Do it. There was a one. One sketch was like the uh, the White House nanny was doing an, an inventory of the bath toys. It was like, uh, and uh, <laughs> um, and uh, Kennedy was helping her with that. And it was like you know, Baby John has uh, four four PT boats and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Three howdy doody bouncing clowns, and uh, then you know baby Caroline. She has uh, I can't remember what the details were, but the the punchline was at the end. He would say, "And the rubber duck is mine." <laughs> that is so good. <laughs> Why didn't we know that you could do this? That's amazing. Cool. I know you Our- held out on us. We could have written so many Kennedy plays. <laughs> so, anyway, yeah. So I just, this comes from having listened to that so much. Uh, but that wow. also, um, now I'm rambling on, but I think there's also a connection there with politics. I was always, so over time, was very engaged with elections and presidential politics in particular. And I think it was the theater of that. Yeah. That interested me. And uh, then later on, I sort of more seriously studied that in terms of the the uh, theater and drama of politics. Um, and actually have been teaching a first year seminar um, for incoming students uh, every four years now. I've, I started it in 2012. We do a, a, a seminar on um, ways in which politics has been viewed from a theatrical perspective by people in different fields like performance studies and sociology and political science but we also follow the um offered in the fall and we follow the election and um, they have to kind of monitor the events of the election in terms of how the media is presenting it um, and identifying kind of the dramatic elements of the presentation, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. which is going to be strange this year <laughs> um, because it's going to be so different. Yeah. Um. So, I want to just take it back a little bit. So, one of my favorite <laughs> questions about this earliest memory is like we hear just like little pieces of you, like your personality, or like um like how we think of you and it, how it re- kind of reflects that. So um, now I'm kind of moving a little bit forward in time. Can you share us your theater journey, like how you discovered dramaturgy and, um, you know, yeah. what was your, yeah, your introduction to theater? You know, when I saw that uh, question on the list of possible questions, I was thinking, the the my stage struck moment was um, 
I had transferred to an all boys Catholic school. My family moved from New York to Tampa, Florida. And um, I had transferred to this all boys uh, Jesuit high school and they did a, mu a musical. They had a pretty active theater program and they did like three plays in a musical every year. And um, I attended their production of Fiddler on the Roof, <laughs> which they did at the Tampa Community Theater. And I just remember very specifically being really, you know, taken with that, just kind of really glued to um, what kinds of cliches can I use here? I was riveted to my seat. Um, <laughs> and, I was, and I was just really like, um, I had been a really big, you know, I grew up watching television as kids of the 60s did um, and uh, and had been to lots of movies and loved movies, particularly kind of big epic historical films. Um, uh, but that theatrical experience of live performance, that was the first that I remember being really um, kind of struck by and thinking, uh, I want to be part of this somehow. Was there um, a moment of Fiddler on the Roof that you? Oh, it was probably remember? tradition. <laughs> you know, it was like, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure whoever that guy was who was a senior playing Tevya. <laughs> in, re in retrospect, I'm sure it would seem kind of silly to go back in time and actually look at that objectively. Sure. <laughs> the 17 year old Tevya. But. <laughs> But I think he was pretty good for, you know, for a 17-year-old high schooler playing Tevya. And I just remember that that number and and, yeah. and, and him singing tradition. So that was kind of the moment and just feeling like I wanted to be involved. Um, and the next thing that came up was a pr production of The Odd Couple. The following year, and I was the stage manager. <laughs> I think I chickened wait, out it, on on. Was audition. it so much fun? Did you enjoy working? It was that? kind of kind of ner It was kind of nerve wracking um, because, <laughs> because I don't know if you know the Odd Couple, the Neil Simon play, but the first scene yeah. is a, a a poker game where they start spraying beer at each other <laughs> and making a big mess. <laughs> And so one of the stage manager's responsibilities is to get that all cleaned up before the next scene. Um, and uh, I got caught on stage. They brought the lights up too soon. I was like, I, I remember the lights coming up and I was still on stage and I covered my face. Like somehow that would make me invisible. But I mean, I think I, I think I knew I really wanted to act, be in the shows but that was my transition was to be um, backstage. Um, and the next thing my school did was the crucible, like all high schools do. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I did audition for that and get a small role and got to do the whole, you know, graying my hair sort of thing with <laughs> powder and hairspray. And I had like two lines. <laughs> um and so I just started from there auditioning and being in the shows at this school. Um, and we had a really good, um, it was a, a, there were two things that were happening at that time. One was I was kind of falling in love with theater. 
The other thing was uh, I was actually getting serious about maybe becoming a priest. Oh my gosh, <laughs> because... I hadn't forgotten that. Part. Yeah, remember that. Um, because um, Father Cack, <laughs> Father John Cack, K A A C K, who became the drama director and was the English teacher, was a really groovy. <laughs> um, you know, post sixties era Jesuit, um, as, as a lot of them were. And I had gone to very traditional Catholic elementary school in New York where the priests were kind of scary. And I mean, some of them were, were, were not, but, <laughs> um, you know, I've since learned that one of them, the one who, who, uh, actually hit me upside the head for talking <laughs> in the, in the hallway, um, <laughs> <laughs> I've since learned that he's on the list of um, uh, <laughs> of priests against whom credible allegations were made of uh, yeah Whoa. sexual um, uh, sexual abuse. Um, uh, anyway, <laughs> so traditional Catholic elementary school, and you know, just kind of went through the motions of all of that. Was not really like immersed in. Catholic faith or culture or anything, but then with these uh, Jesuit priests, most of whom were fairly young, not not that far out of college, uh, they were kind of playful, very human. <laughs> um, they humanized the whole thing, and I sort of, I think I was mostly taken with them, just those men. Um, yeah. And then in the process, they, they, we had a theology course that we had to take, and. It was mostly about kind of rationalizing the faith, you know, sort of explaining why you should believe this, but doing it in logical terms, which is the Jesuit approach. Ironically, in the long run, I think it undid the, uh, <laughs> it gave me the tools to challenge the faith. Mm -hmm. um, but um, but you were seriously considering the kind Yeah, of so it's interesting to me that these two things happened at the same time. One was getting deeply involved in theater and the other was mm. being... Um, um, uh, oh, I don't know if infatuated is the right word. Say infatuated with Father Cack. Sorry, Father Cack. Um, <laughs> he has <laughs> very sadly passed away in the last year. Um, but just uh, really like um, he became sort of like an alternative father figure in a way, no pun intended. I mean, you know, because he was somebody who who I didn't get a lot of huge encouragement at home from my parents around being interested in artistic endeavors. It was like very nice that I did these things, but the idea that I might become serious about it just made them nervous. <laughs> um, yeah. My father started asking very early on what I was going to be doing to make a living. <laughs> and um, when I started applying to colleges and looking at places like Oberlin, <laughs> Um, small liberal arts colleges, and I applied to all the the conventional um, Catholic schools that you were expected to apply to if you were coming out of a Jesuit high school, like Notre Dame and mm. and so on. Um, but there was a lot of anxiety at home about, um, uh, you know, what's wrong with him? What is he going to do when he? <laughs> He has his head in the clouds, you know, just um, the fact that I was really getting serious about theater and also music um, to some extent, which is how I ended up applying to Oberlin in particular. 
but I'd been in a lot of the so from the from the Crucible onward, I was in every show that they did. Um, and um, I think my greatest performance was as King Herod in Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> <laughs> what was your favorite thing about that role? Um, well, <laughs> uh, uh, I think I was a I was a pretty good singer. And I enjoyed singing. And so having a singing role that was like one big moment, you know, mm-hmm. he's only in one scene, but it's a big scene. And it's a kind of an, an act in and of itself. And having that that jaunty number um, uh, and getting a lot of applause at the end. <laughs> um, yeah, just, that's always a know. big plus. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I actually have a uh, cassette with a uh, recording of me doing that, by the way. That oh, my song, gosh. Which well, I how have, have we not been? Well, I don't know. I taught, when I taught theater, theater and Society and Theater History a few years ago, I broke down at the end, and we did a, a day on musical theater. And then as the very last parting thing, I said, all right, I'm going to turn this on and leave the room. <laughs> 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 so yeah it's 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 i it's uh i need to get it digitized before it you know goes bad before but, there are no more cassette yeah. players yeah right so that was a climactic moment herod because that was senior year <laughs> mm-hmm. um so and then i continued when i went to college so i ended up at oberlin as you may have guessed um, um, I had kind of uh, been attracted to Oberlin because of music. I played the piano by ear and I'd had some lessons um, uh, and was really into music, classical music, and of course, show music. But Oberlin was the sort of place where unless you were kind of pre-professional mm. um, and in the, because they have a conservatory, um, the the options for college, Oberlin College students in music are fairly limited. Although I realized later on I could have taken lessons there and I never pursued it. Um, but in terms of coursework, it's fairly limited. But um, this is not a complaint, by the way. This is just more like a realization. <laughs> You're like, oh, yeah, maybe I'm not really as into music as some of these other people mm. are. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then being surrounded by, I mean, Oberlin was a, you know, very kind of liberal progressive place where most people in, in the liberal arts college really didn't know what they were going to do with their lives. On the other hand, most people had sort of one or two things that they were really into or that they were dedicated to. And I, I kind of realized that for me, that was probably theater. That was the thing I had been doing. Um, I had never really thought of it up to that point as a, as something that I was dedicated to in terms of wanting to get some training. Um, but I started, there was real, dis- again, discouragement. I'm making my parents sound bad here, but <laughs> there was discouragement at home. From they were major- worried about you. They were worried. They didn't want me to come home. They saw me coming home, living in my room, you know being 45 years old, living in my room in Tampa. (laughs) Um, uh, It's also was just my, the values were different. My father was a lifelong kind of um, mid-level management 
uh, in an export import company. My brother um, got his degree in accounting and joined that same company as an intern and became its CEO <laughs> over time. Wow. So that was kind of the model was, you know, um, being very practical and business oriented. Um, and my, one of my sisters, interestingly, majored in elementary education in the 60s at Queens College in New York. But the day after she graduated, she went into New York City and got a job as a secretary. And she said, well, you know, I never really wanted to be a teacher. Plus, they didn't, there weren't teaching jobs available at that time. It was kind of glutted. But if you were a woman, that's what you majored in, teaching right. or nursing. Yeah. <laughs> um, wow. But then if you needed a job, you became a secretary. Um, and she actually, over time, be, owned her own advertising company. And so there was a, a real um, uh, emphasis on business um, and accomplishment in that area. Um, so I was discouraged from majoring in theater. And my dodge was, uh, my father actually said to me, oh, is this too much detail, by the way? <laughs> um my father actually told me when I was threatening to major in theater that if I majored in theater, I couldn't stay at Oberlin. Oh, I could come, wow. I could come back to Florida and go to any of the state universities and major in theater, which actually wouldn't have been such a bad thing because Florida state has a really good theater program, but I wasn't a really cognizant of that at the time. So my, my dodge was I majored in English, which is so much more practical. Um, and within English, they had a theater drama concentration. So I was able to take, you know, courses in theater as part of that. And I auditioned for a lot of the shows and did, continued my acting. Um, so I continued with a lot of um, acting at Oberlin. Um, and at the same time, one of the first courses I took was a course in... Um, it was called basically theater history, but it was called History and Literature of the Performing Arts. And it was with a, a brilliant uh, critic named Roger Copeland, who was primarily, um, he had come out of the Yale Drama School um, in the pre-dramaturgy version of that program, which was called Dramatic Literature and Criticism in the early 70s, before they transi transitioned it into a dramaturgy program. And um, <clears throat> I was just really blown away by his lectures on history of theater and theater relationship of theater to ritual. And mm. um, he was very much a 60s, um, uh, a product of the 60s. So his whole kind of narrative was theater began in ritual, you know, in ancient Greece. And then it came back to ritual with the living theater. <laughs> um but um, so theater engaging with ideas, you know, that was new to me rather than theater just being a show. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Um, learning about different playwrights, different thinkers, directors. Um, and that was a year long course. So it was, um, uh, and it ex ex extended beyond theater to the reason he called it history and literature of the performing arts was because it included a fair amount of dance history because oh, that cool. was, that was his specialty. Um, and a lot of um, performance work that was 
avant-garde and interdisciplinary, so, you know, happenings in the 60s and that kind of thing. So it really opened up the whole concept of theater. Um, And while I was wanting to be in the shows, and that was kind of the main thing, at the same time, I was beginning to develop an academic interest in it, like, oh, this is something you can actually study. (laughs) You know, it has a a history, and um, uh, it's it's it's... um, it's something that um, is uh, a field of knowledge. Um, and, and so that certainly was the beginning of my, ultimately, I haven't even talked about dramaturgy yet, right? So <laughs> I, became, <laughs> um, I became aware of um, the idea of dramaturgy when I was like a junior or senior at Oberlin. And I don't remember specifically how that was. I think I may have dipped into, I was looking at graduate school catalogs Mm -hmm. because that's what you did in those days. You Mm -hmm. went to the library or the, or the, um, you know, career office, right. You went and you found the catalogs (laughs) (laughs) and I was looking at the Yale school of drama catalogs and the program that he had gone to at that point had become dramaturgy and dramatic criticism. Mm -hmm. And I was, that, that may have been my introduction to the idea of dramaturgy. Uh, so I started reading up a little bit on it, but it was still kind of obscure. Yale was about the only place that was doing it. The idea of it in the American theater was still pretty limited. Um, I learned as I was reading and becoming more aware of what was going on in the theater in the U.S. that there was this beast called a literary manager um, who was employed at a lot of theaters who was responsible for reading and evaluating plays, and that that was a type of dramaturg, mm-hmm. uh, and that the bigger th- bigger theaters, like, say, the Guthrie, you know, usually had <clears throat> one or two dramaturgs actually fully employed on their staffs, a literary manager, and then another dramaturg who usually did... Um, education programs, and that both of them also did production dramaturgy. Um, So the idea of dramaturgy, I was introduced to that in that way. After I graduated from Oberlin, I taught high school for two years. I taught in an all-boys Catholic school. (laughs) (laughs) And what subjects did you teach? um, Well, I was an English teacher, um, but I taught um, the whole range of you know, American literature, um, composition, but I also taught a course in speech. And um, they, ha- they had a, um, uh, a drama program and a guy uh, there who was pretty well established, um, who directed all the shows. And I gradually kind of helped out with those. Mm-hmm. He was a little resistant at first. He was like, he does it himself. He doesn't need help. <laughs> I think somebody like the principal told him, you know, Art has this experience and he would like to get involved, Doug. (laughs) (laughs) And suddenly he, overnight, he became really friendly. No, really, really nice guy, actually. um, I think he's still at that school, actually. This was in Columbus, Ohio. And um, it's funny, I never thought I would end up teaching in an all-boys Catholic school, which was the, the exact universe that I had left behind because nothing could be more different from an all-boys Catholic school than Oberlin College. (laughs) Um, But my wife um, entered a PhD program in counseling psychology at Ohio State, 
and I kind of followed her there and just looking for a job. I didn't have the um, the credentials to do public school teaching because at the time, anyway, Oberlin didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you could do it like um, later on through an MAT program or something like that. But um, so and if you wanted to teach, you had to look at private schools and that's how I ended up. I see. Yeah. But, I wonder um, if if we could get your thoughts a little bit on, um, you know, as you kind of developed your eye and ear as a dramaturg, what kinds of plays did you find exciting and what kinds of plays do you find exciting now? And has that changed at all? Um. Yeah, well, I'm going to continue with my life story and then come to that. <laughs> Um, no, because I think it's, I think it's, I think it's relevant in terms of the discovery of dramaturgy. Because when I was, I spent two years teaching in this high school and really having a hard time with the discipline side of it, but, but realizing that I really loved the subject matter that I was teaching, Mm -hmm. um, especially the literature courses. And, um, there were some more specialized elective courses I taught, like literature of the supernatural, um, and being involved with the drama program. And I started, I knew I was going to go to graduate school. I wasn't sure whether I would pursue a PhD in English or a graduate degree in theater. Um, and I looked at both sorts of programs and then, um, and a sort of trial basis spent a summer at the Breadloaf School of English, which is an MA program geared towards, uh, at Middlebury College geared towards um, Notice how I'm not answering your question at all, but I, I am going to. <laughs> um, I just that wanted is to totally fine. I wanted to complete the discovery of dramaturgy. Yes, yes, yes. The journey, yes, the journey, the journey into dramaturgy. Um, the uh, uh, so at Bre- the Breadloaf School of English is actually this su- school during the summer that um, mostly secondary school teachers go to to acquire MA degrees over series of su- of summers. Um, it's a little bit like the Hollands program that I've become involved with, which is, you know, low residency. It only takes place during the summer and over, you know, three or four summers, you receive a master's degree in playwriting. Um, well, this was a master's degree in, in literature and Breadloaf was also known for its famous writers conference. But, um, so I went there, um, just thinking this would be like trying out graduate school, which is kind of an odd idea in retrospect, because, Breadloaf is more like summer camp for adults and not at all really like what graduate school (laughs) is like. Um, And then on top of that, I took a course in contemporary American theater with Michael Cadden, who was at the time one of the resident dramaturgs at Yale. And that was really the thing that told me, well, it's not going to be a PhD in English. It's going to be uh, a graduate degree in theater, and I hope it'll be at Yale because this, you know, dramaturgy was the thing that interested me most because of the idea that it's somehow combined, even though it's an elusive thing, dramaturgy, but the basic idea that it somehow combines theory and history with practice, mm-hmm. you know, that I could study the theater the way I had studied it with Roger Copeland and with Michael Cadden, study the literature, but also at the same time be involved in the in the production process, the creative process. So that was the thing that really 
put me over the the hump <laughs> towards towards dramaturgy. Um, and I applied to PhD programs at other places um, that some dramaturgs have actually come out of people who graduated at the time. Um, they were not very focused on dramaturgy. A lot of those programs have since become more, um, have added dramaturgy as part of the curriculum as it's become more well-known and established. Um, so now I'll answer your question. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, It's you just know, so good to hear, though, because the, this tra- tra- trajectory, because I think a lot of, um, a lot of people, especially people who are just getting into dramaturgy often wonder what, what could a career path look like or an academic education Mm -hmm. path. Well, I've in doing admissions for the dramaturgy program here, I've noticed that over time, increasingly the point at which people first learn about and become interested in dramaturgy has gotten earlier and earlier. Mm -hmm. It, It used to be, you know, starting in, the program really has been in existence since the late 90s. Um, around that time, most of the people who applied to the program had discovered dramaturgy the way I did in there, you know, during college and usually later in college and in a happenstance sort of way. Mm-hmm. Um, but nowadays, you know, <clears throat> people are learning about it in high school and they're deciding you know, even as they go into college, this is, I think, what I want to do. Um, and really trying to focus on it while, while also, you know, doing other things in theater. So it's a little different now. People are making more active decisions about it. I kind of eased my way into it <laughs> as I discovered it. Um, um, <clears throat> and... Uh, I, I've been very fortunate, I think, by being in certain places at certain times and encountering certain people. So first Roger Copeland, you know, then Michael Cadden and Alan uh, McVeigh at Breadloaf, because um, Michael Cadden got me very excited about contemporary American playwrights and also the idea of dramaturgy, because he would um, teach the plays you know, as literature, but then he would talk about how, oh, we, and we did a production of this at the Yale Rep Mm. and, you know, and here's the choices that were made or, you know, he would describe, remember him describing the end of Athel Fugard's Master Harold and the Boys where um, the young white man based on, it's a semi-autobiographical play based on Athel Fugard is, um, uh, uh, I'm trying to remember now the scene. He um, has come to this realization about the fact that he's been, um, you know, good friends with these two black men who um, worked for his family. But in fact, there's always been a level of racism that he didn't acknowledge. Mm-hmm. You know, this is very much an apartheid era play. And at the very end of the play, the two black men do a ballroom dance together. <laughs> And he was describing the scene and beginning to basically cry in front of the class. Wow. And so I thought, yeah, this is this is this is why dramaturgy, because I don't want to be just the person who studies the play in the library. I want to be the person who's there in the room. <laughs> yeah. Who sees it coming to life. Um mm. uh 
so that was really special. Um, And then, but again, this does answer your question finally, which is um, the plays I would have been most excited about at the time would have been mostly plays that I had either studied in college or with Michael Cadden at Breadloaf. Um, You know, Sam Shepard was very big at the time. Um, both the early Sam Shepard, but Sam Shepard had also just written a series of um, uh, family plays, Curse of the Starving Class, Buried Child, True West, mm-hmm. and was sort of remaking that that genre of American drama. And that was all very exciting. Um, you know, I hate to say it, but at the time, and now I feel like it's almost a, source of shame to announce this, but David Mamet <laughs> at the time, um, the David Mamet of um, sexual perversity in Chicago, American Buffalo, um, who was really doing something with language and almost, I thought, doing, and as it was kind of represented by Michael Cadden too, was doing a sort of critique of American male mm. culture that he was, you know, actually sh- demonstrating how if you if you live and talk this way, you're going to have a limited perception of the world and you're going to treat people badly. I mean, as it's turned out over time, I think he's been Mamet has turned out to reveal himself more as somebody who enjoys being part of that culture. Yeah. <laughs> than being a no critic kidding. of it. Than being a <laughs> than, than being a critic of it. So that's been very disappointing. But it's interesting uh, to hear you describe your understanding of him that way. Yeah. Based on his early work. Cause I wonder if, I mean, do you think there, there's a, maybe a nuance or a, a complexity there that we have lost? Well, I haven't followed, to? I haven't followed the, the plays that closely since, um, you know, like the mid nineties. Um, I think Oleana was a turning point. <laughs> that was, that's the play about, um, the student who goes to this male professor to discuss her grades and, um, challenges him in all sorts of ways. And he ends up, um, treating her violently. Yeah. It was very much a, you know, play about sexual politics on campus in the nineties. And, there was a, it was very controversial because it it kind of he really sympathized with the male professor and presented the male professor as being a victim of this woman who in the end it's suggested that she's become part of this radical group that's she starts she starts out you know being very kind of shy and and passive and help me professor, (laughs) you know, but in the end it's like, uh, well, I've been talking to my group and my group says, (laughs) you know, and so she became kind of this representative of this, um, political correctness, you know, that he was, um, making a criticism of, and there was just a little too much sympathy for the male professor, um, to understand. It's just it. so interesting. Because so I, I, th- I mean, I've always had such a hard time with Mamet. I mean, I, I really do not like his work. But, but hearing yeah. you say this makes me wonder how you know reading somebody's or seeing somebody's plays at the beginning of their career, 
you might have a really different understanding of who that artist is than Mm -hmm. than you would later when you can take in your whole body of work it's true i mean you look at any of the you know established modern playwrights that we study their careers have a trajectory so you know the ibsen of a dollhouse is different from the ibsen of when we dead awaken um and I'm sure there were there there were people going to the master builder and when we did awaken saying, What is he doing? <laughs> <laughs> we miss Nora. <laughs> um but yeah, so I don't know. I mean I and when I was at Yale, which would have been eighty three to eighty six for the MFA, I one of the plays that I saw in New York was the original production of Glengarry Glen Ross, which was, you know, Mammoth's probably his most famous play really about the real estate salesman. Yeah. Uh, the first part of it. Uh, I for, really hate that. Play. Yeah. Well, the first half of it is like a series of sketches um, between these salesmen. And then the second half is there's this robbery of the place that's taken place. And it's got a little bit of a, uh, a mystery about it, but all the way through, he is presenting these, these men who, um, you know, always be closing, sell, you know, the, 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 their, their life in sales and kind of the language of salesmanship, salespersonship. And it was just very exciting because I saw it with Robert Prosky, who was the original Shelley Levine. And I saw it with Joe Mantegna, who was the original Roma. And it was just the performance of it that blew me away. Um, yeah. And then the play itself I thought was was very, very interesting. I thought he was doing what I thought Mamet was doing at the time, which is in the first half, well, really through the whole play, I, but especially in the first half doing a sort of critique of male sales language. Mm-hmm. Like the, these are the, the kinds of relationships you lock yourself into if you talk this way. Um, and... Uh, yeah, but then after Glengarry Glen Ross, I became less, I don't know, I think I did follow the plays uh, to some extent beyond that. He got more involved in film. Um, and uh, the plays became less interesting to me. They seemed to be less about the language of, he seemed to be doing, I mean, maybe he kind of exhausted that take on on things was... And of course, what I'm saying about Mamet is arguable, right? In retrospect, all of this kind of critique of the male language that I'm offering is like, it's a yes, but proposition. <laughs> it's like, yes, Art, but <laughs> don't, you, <laughs> don't you see <laughs> that he really loves these guys and he's one of them and that maybe that becomes more revealed later in the career. Mm-hmm. Maybe he's got a little more distance or something, or a, a sort of young man's uh, <laughs> detachment, <laughs> or a little bit of disgust, maybe even self-disgust <laughs> um, that comes through. But then later on, boy, it's an awful lot about Mamet. <laughs> <laughs> this is where the this is where the swearing begins, right? Um, <laughs> uh, so <laughs> I should probably stop on Mamet, but just so Sam Shepard, David Mamet were the two big names. 
<laughs> yeah. of the playwrights that I was, you know, and other playwrights that um, we studied that I was very interested in included like Chris Durang, Christopher Durang, uh, which was a totally different thing, just kind of that kind of comedy farce, you know, put towards social issues. Um, Albert Inarato, who was well-known at the time, not so well-known now, um, wrote a really wonderful play called The Transfiguration of Ben O'Blimpy, which was based partly on his experience of um, growing up obese and the abuse that he was subject to as an obese person. Um, It's sort of, it's an interesting play to put alongside um, The Whale, Sam Hunter's play. Mm-hmm. Um, which deals with similar issues. Um, you know, and then there were a few writers. I wasn't really, I wouldn't say excited by these writers, but I was sort of like, huh, interesting. <laughs> uh, Michael Cadden introduced us to um, writers like Lee Brewer from um, Mabu Mines, who is normally thought of as a director, but there were he did have published texts one of which we studied in that course that was presented as a graphic novel which doesn't sound like a radical idea now but at the time it was it was in this collection of plays published by performing arts journal word plays and so you have these conventional plays and then this graphic novel at the end that was really unusual and it was presented that way because the the no, the graphic part of it um and graphic novel isn't really the right term um, but the, the style of it was like a graphic novel. Um, the graphics were designed to evoke a sense of the staging. Mm. Uh, and then the text was, you know, in the boxes alongside the images. And it was a just different way of presenting text. And I don't think I was quite ready to be excited about it or understand it. <laughs> but I was intrigued by it, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, and the idea that this was an avant-garde director who was also a writer, um, uh, that was important. Um, should I keep going? Or, well, uh... <laughs> so I, I'm kind of wondering, so if you think about the plays that you were excited about then and the plays mm-hmm. that you're excited about now, what mm-hmm. has changed Well, certainly going through the program at Yale and being immersed in a whole history of dramatic literature um, and then becoming more aware of the varieties and diversity of modern contemporary uh, playwriting, that was a really big thing. Uh, So discovering certain writers, artists, and certain genres, and inevitably somewhere in this interview I'm going to have to say Brecht (laughs) because that was a really big uh, discovery for me um, as it is for a lot of people. Uh, Brecht himself as a playwright and his whole concept of epic theater but also his influence in the world of political playwriting uh, which I think we you know I think it's still still felt today um uh so you know, my my dissertation for yale was um as you know <laughs> on uh british history plays from the 50s onward 
uh, and the interest of Brecht deepened through um, understanding how Brecht had influenced um, the British theater in the era of um, first John Osborne and John Arden, that early royal court group, but then later the the, the writers who used to be the young radicals of the British theater, but are now the established senior people. Right, right. Like Carol Churchill, Carol Churchill, Howard Brenton, David Hare, David Edgar, et cetera. Um, that, ex, that kind of explosion in the 70s of uh, epic theater that was political, historical, and very well subsidized <laughs> at the National Theater, Royal Shakespeare Company, et cetera. Um, you know, the, Britain had just been through all of that in the 70s, and it was still hanging on a little bit in the 80s, although now we were into the Thatcher era. Um, and uh, I was really very, very interested in those th- that work. And that has continued. You asked about today. Mm-hmm. Um, I've tried to keep up with all of that work in Britain. And, you know, Howard Brenton among that group of writers, Carol Churchill certainly, Um, Although her plays have become more, over time, have become almost more like Samuel Beckett. Um, They've become more um, surrealistic, absurdist in a way. Um, uh, So we have to have a Beckett reference since it's Beckett's baby. Yes, definitely. She has become a Beckett baby to some extent. But Howard, Howard Brenton has really maintained that kind of Brechtian epic structure in his work and has done more. I actually interviewed him in the early 90s for dissertation research. And at that point, he said, I really haven't written. I don't know why you want to talk to me. I haven't really written a whole lot of history plays. Um, It was actually true at that time. He'd only written one or two, but the two that that were of interest to me were really important, the Romans in Britain. Yeah, which Um, we read in your class. Yeah, Um, But he has actually, since then, written quite a few um, history plays, all of which take kind of famous figures and speculate about what went on around them. You know, like he has a play called Lawrence After Arabia Mm -hmm. and a play about Anne Boleyn, which is a very sympathetic portrait of Anne Boleyn. Um, some plays that are very, very British in terms of their focus on British history, like British political figures, it would probably be hard to get them produced in the U.S. Um, there's a play about called "Drawing the Line" about um, about the negotiations, the British involvement in negotiations around um, the partition of India and Pakistan in the late '40s when. You know, India became independent, and um, the Muslim mi- uh, minority wanted to break off and form its own nation. And exactly how that was going to happen was, yeah, a big question. And then there was, you know, violence, um, and the British. Um, what a surprise! The British didn't handle it very well. <laughs> um, but at the main figure in that play is a forgotten British bureaucrat who was kind of charged with supervising that process. And apparently when he died, or not when he died, but um, he left uh, like instructions that after he died, all of his papers and maps and everything should be burned. Oh, wow. Mm. Um, so, um, so Howard Brenton, although he's, you know, he's, he's an old guy. Um, but still engaging with history, politics, and exciting kind of Brechtian epic way. 
Um, so that has stuck with me. And then there's some, you know, younger writers in Britain. There's a writer named James Graham. Have you ever heard of him? I don't um, think so. He's uh, really well known in Britain, not so well known here in the U.S. He's written um, several plays. Again, I think partly because a lot of them are about British politics and British political figures. They wouldn't play very well here. Hmm. He does have one, one play called Inc., which is about Rupert Murdoch, the Australian um, businessman who took over the sun in the 70s and kind of invented the whole sensationalist form of journalism we all know and love today. <laughs> Although now it's crossed over into other media. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but but just in case I sound like I'm just an Anglophile. <laughs> 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 it was good you sent me these questions in advance because I got some time to think a little bit about this, and I'm probably answering it answering it a little differently than I would if I was put on the spot with it. <laughs> um, you know, there there are American writers certainly. I mean, one of my my great. Um, I mean, it's t- not radical to say I'm a, to say that you're a fan of Tony Kushner, but um, having seen Angels in America Part One at the National Theater in Britain at a time when the play had been like fully developed in the U S but it hadn't had its uh, production yet, but the, the British kind of embraced it. Well, it was clear to me as somebody studying, not just to me, I'm sure <laughs> as somebody, you know, enamored of Brechtian epic theater of a certain kind in Britain that the British would take to that right away. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not to mention the fact that it's a, you know, criticism of America and they love that. <laughs> Um, so, you know, Tony Kushner, um, the Tony Kushner of Angels in America and the plays that he wrote soon after that. Um, uh, and then, but also other writers like Paula Vogel, you know, Indecent, mm-hmm. which is very theatrical and presents a kind of epic perspective on that, that piece of history. Um, so I'm very interested in all of that kind of work. Yeah. Um, uh, but what I think what I wanted to say is, you know, in one direction, going beyond that, I also really love things that are very theatrical or meta-theatrical. Uh, and uh, J- Brandon Jacob Jenkins in Octoroon springs to mind, you know, where he takes this classic racist melodrama and his own fascination with it as an African-American writer and sort of asked, why am I so fascinated with this play? And I don't, um, in the first part of it, it's um, a writer, actor based on himself who is kind of cogitating over all of that. And then the rest of it is an actual adaptation of the play done a little bit differently from a contemporary perspective. Uh, I think that's really, that kind of thing is really wonderful. Yeah. Um, but I also, um, you know, I, I, I like a good piece of solid, slow brewing realism as much as the next person. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I was thinking about like Annie Baker. Yeah. And the flick and this most recent play of hers, John you know, where you enter into a kind of naturalistic world, fourth wall slice of life world and you learn just a little bit about characters that are talking to each other in the first scene and you're wondering where is the drama in this <laughs> you know but it kind of gradually 
comes forward through their interactions with each other and, and the kind of emotional psychological relationships. Yeah. And that's very different from the epic, the, the kind of Brechtian epic approach. It's more right. like- Right, and it's more, also very different from Glengarry Glenn Ross. Very, very different, yes. Very different. Um, yeah. But um, that kind of, you know, dare I call it well-made? <laughs> the well-made play has a bad reputation because it's thought of as being the 19th century artificial mechanical thing that it was in its time. But when I say well-made, I mean, you know, really carefully wrought attention to detail and building relationships and character mm -hmm. and not seeing really where the drama lies until it hits you. <laughs> and then when it hits you, it's like a little bit to one side of maybe what you expect. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but, you know, I think I mentioned Sam Hunter before, our very own Sam Hunter. And I think some of his work is, is like that, too, where he takes, you know, ordinary people in small town America working at the equivalent of Walmart. And they're in the break room and... <laughs> talking about break room things and their jobs. And it's like, okay, where's the drama? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then it just sort of gradually comes Yeah, I just to the read floor. his play, Greater Clements. Have you read that? No, I have not. It's really, it's really good. I, I mean, it's definitely, um, a, it feels like a big tragedy in a way that some of his other plays um, mm -hmm. are, are more, maybe more understated, but um I found mm. it very moving. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And then I, I'm, I'm sorry, I've sort of like cheated a little bit having thought about this in advance, but <laughs> I would also throw into the mix plays that are realistic, but have a more lyrical element to them. Mm. What we used to call poetic realism. Um, and a writer like Nilo Cruz, for example, um, who is best known for Anna in the Tropics, but in some ways that's his most conventional play. Um, mm -hmm. But his plays are all grounded in, you know, it's a beautiful but have a, it's a, it is, it really is. Um, uh, and I've become kind of, I actually wrote something about him for professional purposes several years ago where I was invited to do a kind of review of his work for, uh, a grant consideration. And uh, I don't know if, Nilo, if you're listening, <laughs> <laughs> I did that. I don't know what, I don't know how it panned out, but, <laughs> but it gave me an opportunity to like read every single play and um, really explore the whole career. And he had been a teacher here for one semester just prior to the time when I started running the program, when he was fresh out of Brown and he was not yet Nilo Cruz in quotation marks. <laughs> he was just a guy, <laughs> you know, coming out of graduate school who wow. was finding his way. Um, uh, and he gave the best back rub I've ever received, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> this may be a little too personal, but... <laughs> There was a rough, this was a year right after the, the program <laughs> department had kind of fallen apart in some ways and the, the, the program was in transition and we had somebody running the program who was in a visiting position and was struggling with it. And I was 
kind of running it behind the scenes. And there was a lot of anxiety. <laughs> and Nilo was here for a semester. And um, this is a great tangential story, but I have to tell it. I was sitting in the lobby of the theater building. Have just my back and shoulders were all knotted and I was like achy, achy. And I was telling him about it and he said, oh, well, you know, uh, one of my jobs was as a, uh, I forget exactly what you would call it, but basically he was a physical therapy assistant or something like that. He proceeded wow. to give me the back rub that totally unknotted every, every part of my neck and shoulders. And I thought, I'm going to remember this. <laughs> <laughs> that's is, amazing this is a moment <laughs> and then he became you know quite well known and mm -hmm. now of course i tell people whenever i can that i had a back rub from nilo cruz <laughs> anyway speaking of back rubs in the theater lobby <laughs> um i mean we we recognize you're not that feeling that i'm digressing are you <laughs> No, no, <laughs> not at all. No, not at all. So, um, just hearing you, um, talking about the things have changed, and I'm so curious to know, and I'm sure a lot of listeners are curious to know too, because we talk about the playwrights program a few times on the show, and so I think we'd just love to hear your just thoughts about um the workshop and like any additional thoughts you have about the MFA program in general, like and what it is that maybe that you feel like Iowa stands out from mm -hmm. other programs? One thing we've always prided ourselves on, I think, and this has been reinforced by um, feedback that we've gotten from guests over the years, as well as like literary managers and dramaturgs who read the work of graduates of the program not long after they graduate, um, is that we I think are pretty good at embracing a range of voices and styles. Mm -hmm. I like to think of that as the dramaturgical influence, <laughs> mm -hmm. which I think it is in part, um, you know, that we're not, when we admit people to the program, we're not looking for somebody who writes a particular way. Um, uh, we uh, respond as best we can and we're human. So we're subjective and we, you know, we have our tastes and our predilections, but, um, I think in general, we, we just look at each writer in terms of, is there a voice here, whatever style or form that may take, you know, is there an exploration of the theatrical of, of what can be done on stage and kind of the role of writing? and text uh, in theater. Those are kind of two key things, and it tends to lead to, um, you know, admitting people who are very different, which um, I think we, we, it's become a kind of a badge of honor in a way, um, because we get that people say it a lot. <laughs> um, and, uh, I remember attending an LMDA conference a few years after I started running the program and talking to a literary manager from the Guthrie, I think it was at the time, who who said, oh, I love reading the plays that come out of your program. They're all so different. And, and she said, and it's not that way with a lot of other programs. I said, you can often tell where this person went to school based on what they're writing. 
Um, so I think that's a distinguishing factor. Um, uh, the degree, the amount of production that we do, which mm. is at the which is at the moment a big question, of course, because with um, the virus and being online and not being sure about the transition back. And, you know, we had a whole production season picked out for next year, built around the 100th anniversary of the founding of the department. And all of that has gone kind of, you know, hasn't gone by the wayside. It's like, okay, now how are we going to celebrate the centennial? Um, And are we going to be able to produce? Uh, It's led to some kind of interesting, almost absurdist questions like, can this play be done in a socially distanced way? (laughs) Wow. Right. So I was like, when we were talking about this in a faculty meeting, we had plans to do Streetcar Named Desire. I thought, yeah, this is great. We could have Stanley on one side of the stage saying, hey, Blanche! (laughs) (laughs) We got a thing here called the Napoleonic Code! (laughs) (laughs) What'd you say, Stanley? (laughs) Sorry. All right, I think you could play all the roles. Uh, yeah, it just be a one-man show. One person. You won't have to. Throw, I don't have to be socially distanced from. Exactly. Myself. Yeah. I think that would be, um, I would watch that. I would watch that too. I have to be careful about those sorts of jokes because the people who are really, you know, the director of theater, Brian Wynn, and our new chair, Mary Beth Easley, who's been wonderful. You know, they have to <laughs> treat this very, very seriously. And, <laughs> And I can be as serious about it as the next person, but there is something a little odd about, can this be done in a socially distanced way? Um, But that's become kind of the key question for the teaching too. Is this the course you're teaching? Can it be socially distanced? Should it stay online? But I'm coming back to your question about the program, the amount of production that we do so that a writer coming into the program can expect um, more than one production of uh they won't necessarily get more than no they will actually we've set it up now this might be different from when you were here uh we're a little more sane now we've set it up so that coming into the program you are told in your first year you'll get a reading and festival Mm -hmm. in your second year you will get a gallery production Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it's not sheerly competitive that is assuming you have a play you will get a gallery production and for year. people who don't know, gallery is a is the student um, the series yeah. of student productions that are right. um, in usually mm-hmm. in a black box space. Yeah, in- usually student directed, low low budget, but fair, but fairly highly produced because of the amount of resources you can draw upon. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then the, the the new play festival productions are similar. Um, all of these productions are at some level workshop productions because the scripts are in development, but mm-hmm. the production values are pretty high, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, particularly, um, I think, for the festival. Yeah. And so, and then that's the other thing we say. And then in your third year, now you may get one sooner, but in your third year, you will definitely get a festival production. Uh-huh. That that does uh, make sense, I think. Yeah, and the, the numbers don't always work out because sometimes we have three people in the third year, and then we would do four productions now in festival. We might have done more when you were here. Four seems to be the magic number, um, and so we'll have like three from the third year and one from the second, and then people also continue to apply for other things, so that um, some third year writers have gotten a second gallery production or a gallery workshop in their third year. Uh-huh. 
And the workshops, the so-called, I said most of them are really workshop productions, but the so-called workshops that are designated as workshops, the difference is that you get all the rehearsal time, uh, you don't get as much technical support, the script is expected to be even that much more in development. Um, and they used to be done in 172, which people who don't obviously don't know, that's uh, basically a movement, an acting movement classroom, but very nice. Um, and uh, those have shifted to what was known as Theater B, but is now the Alan McVeigh Theater, which is the smaller of the oh. three theater cool. spaces. Yeah, it's now the Alan McVeigh Theater because oh. Alan's, Alan's stepped down from being chair after 30 mm. some years. Wow. And, uh, um, I remember seeing and, that um, news. Yeah. I was like, wow, it's been theater B. <laughs> it's been theater B. Yeah. B. I kept thinking, you know, right. All, all you do, theater B, and all you have to do is add O R R E C A. Oh my gosh, Art. <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke. Um, I'm happy that it's named for Alan. They can mm-hmm. name, like, um, I don't know. They can name um, one of those tables in the lobby after me or something. We're running well, out of the, things. The theater running... building, <laughs> the theater <laughs> lobby, does not have a name. That's yeah. true. I mean, it's just calling it the theater building. <laughs> That's really an opportunity, I think. Well, the the old part of the building is the EC Maybe Theater, but you're right. The newer part has never really had an official name, so that's something to aspire to. But um, <laughs> you were running out of things to name. Eric Forsyth retired a couple of years ago and we named uh, acting classroom after him. And um, we have the David Shaw conference room in the Cosmo Catalano acting studio. And we're just going to run out of stuff, you know, yeah. uh, there's, the, there's the stairs, there's the bathrooms. <laughs> there's, the, there's a lot to name. We got the, Mer- the, Mer- the Meredith Alexander stairway. <laughs> um, but uh, so, produ- yeah, so I was going to say is these workshops have actually they, they teeter on productions. They're actually, if you look at them as an audience member, you wouldn't know they weren't being produced. <laughs> uh, people find ways to invest them, especially the MFA directors, to invest them with high production values, even though they are workshops. Um, and so some people have had those in the third year. We're actually moving towards something new. Mary Beth Easley, who is a director and has done, done a lot of work in new play development, um, uh, was saying, you know, as a professional director and somebody who deals a lot with directors who direct new plays, um, a lot of them tell me, I don't direct very many productions, um, but I do direct a lot of stage readings and workshops, <laughs> um, which, you know, you could take as a sign of the problem with new play development, everything being stuck in developmental hell, um, people not getting productions. But but her point was that she felt the MFA directors were maybe not getting sufficient training in doing that kind of work. Oh, You know, that's not just a matter of working on the play and putting it up in a limited way, that there is a real craft to working with actors in a staged reading and a workshop situation. So next year, assuming a regular year, we had been going to do workshops in December of the festival plays. Oh. So the, the festival scripts will be selected earlier in the fall. Mm. 
we have new directors coming in. The playwrights will be teamed with those directors. I'm teaching a new play dramaturgy course, and they'll work on the scripts through that course, uh, do the workshops, and then we'll produce them in the festival. So we're trying to kind of build the oh, developmental wow. end of things and... Uh, I think those workshops will take the place of the opportunity for third-year students to also have another gallery production or workshop, but I think it's for the good overall. That makes a lot of sense, because I agree. I mean, I think coming out of an MFA program where there were all these production opportunities, it was kind of a, I wouldn't say a rude awakening, because that sounds too extreme, but I mean, you know, you graduate and then you are doing mostly readings <laughs> for for at least a couple of years. So um, I think it's it's important to practice those kinds of skills too. Well, I th- also, I think that you know we tend to think of readings as being a step on the way to production, but Len Berkman, who you I'm sure know from yes uh, he, and yeah. love. Um, he's written about this where he, he's actually made the case for the staged reading as really uh, a form of it's a contemporary form of performance when uh-huh. done well, when done well. And it's one that answers to the demands of the culture so that, you know, you can get the actors you want for a few days before they run back to their film jobs. Um, uh, and that, in the right hands, it can be much more than a developmental opportunity. It can really be a kind of special performance. And I've certainly seen readings over the years where I felt, I'd like to see a production of this, but this was really a good experience of this work. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, definitely. Um, So that's, she wants to, Mary Beth wants to give more attention to that, and that's good. Um, And we've, we've always been, as you know, talking about how to enhance the developmental end of things before we get to the actual production. Um, And that has worked in some years pretty well when a festival play has had a couple of readings prior to its production or where a gallery production has had a reading in festival and then had a gallery. But um, there hasn't been, it hasn't been systematic. And I think there's a little bit of an effort to make it more systematic. So to answer the question, (laughs) I think the production opportunities, but really more specifically production opportunities tied to um, an awareness of the developmental process Mm -hmm. for new plays. Um, And then, um, I mean, those are two big things, uh, the range of voices and styles, the production opportunities. Those are two things I hear a lot about from people applying to the program to say, oh, I know these are things that I've heard about your program that attracted me to it. And I think they are true. Um, I think the level of um, feedback that you get, you know, is uh, pretty intensive and pretty extensive and generally pretty good, <laughs> mm-hmm. maybe sometimes excessive. <laughs> um, I don't think it's uh, ex- I think people are sensitive. <laughs> yeah. Well, we've had some incidents in more recent, we've had some incidents in more recent years um, leading to some rifts between students in the program. Um, and we've learned to add in certain um, procedures like, in workshop, the playwright has the right to pause the discussion 
and to say, I've heard enough on this topic. Can you go on to something else? Well, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. So because we it, it had been structured around the idea the playwright listens and then then they answer they ask their questions closer to the end, but we wanted people to feel like they're in control, that if they're feeling like they're being deluged with comments about something that they they know full well and they don't want to listen to yet another one, <laughs> you know, or or it's just something they need to think about and people keep harping on it. It's better for them to be able to say. Um, could we move on to something else? And we also kind of check in with people more now, like, you know, are you okay? (laughs) 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 Or like, if you can sense when people are sort of, the steam starts coming out of their ears, you know, and it's like, um, do you need to take, do we need to take a break? Do do you want to move on to something else? Because even being told you can do that doesn't always lead people to do it, Mm. you know? But the larger thing is I think the extent of the feedback from both colleagues, faculty, and then guest artists. Mm -hmm. And I would say that's another component is the guest artist program is just so important. Um, Being able to bring people from the profession who are here and in an intensive way um, do something different from what the established faculty does, whether it's generative in terms of like writing exercises or whether it's taking work that you're working on and reconsidering it from a new perspective. Uh, And then all the connections that you make through those um, guest artists, both during the year and in the new play festival. Hmm. Surely I'm leaving something out. Uh, (laughs) I think the fact that the program is highly integrated with a larger theater arts program that is very collaborative uh, and people actually talk to each other. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes not the case in theater departments, in spite of the collaborative nature of the art. Um, um, you know, the when I first started out on the faculty here, there was a lot of talk about how the playwriting program was the flagship program. And the, the directors and the actors were all feeling kind of used by the playwriting program. Like they were there to serve the playwriting program. And I think we've shifted that that culture over the years to it's one of the it's a small thing, but that's why we stopped calling it the Iowa Playwrights Festival and called it the Iowa New Play Festival. Oh. Um, to uh-huh. create, you know, we've we've over the time that I've been here, we've worked on increasing a sense of department ownership of new play work. Um both in the festival and in other ways. And that also means creating space as needed for other kinds of new work if there is an impulse to do that, you know, whether it's more devised sort of work or director-led work. Um, We don't really have a curriculum built around that, but whenever there's somebody in the program who says, I want to do this kind of project, is there a writer who might be interested? You know, I think we we generally say yes to things, and then you kind of work it out in terms of your resources and where it fits into the program. So I think that's a pretty good rundown of distinguishing features of the program. 
Yeah. No, that's Can you ask me what, what some of the negatives are now? <laughs> <laughs> no. We'll save that for another time. Well, yeah. I, you know, I will. We're, one thing, we are in Iowa. You may have known that. <laughs> oh, my uh, God, Art. And um, it's one of the reasons the guest artist program is so important, is bringing the world to us. There are advantages to being in Iowa because you can really focus on your work. And there's a lot more going on in Iowa City culturally than you would expect to find if you know nothing about Iowa City on arrival. Um, but it does pre- prevent challenges to recruiting and admissions in terms of the, the diversity of um, the student um, the student playwrights. Um, the acting program has done a really, really good job of recruiting actors from different backgrounds. Playwriting, we've re- relied a little more on people coming our way because the program is well known, so you sort of expect you'll get a lot of good applicants. But it's been difficult to attract um, writers of color, you know, the prospect of going to Iowa uh, from New York or Chicago or L.A. or uh, if, if, they, if that's where they are, um, is a little daunting. Yeah. Um, um, but I think we're doing a little better on that. Um, the co- and the graduate college has um, fellowships that are oriented towards um, uh, persons of color, uh, underrepresented minorities. I'm uh, sure that that many of the performing arts programs at Iowa have thought a lot about this. I'm wondering whether, you know, there's, you know, like, is there a way to work in concert with, I don't know, like the dance, the dance department. There probably is. Um, Or like learn from each other's best practices. Right. Yeah. I know I, I do I think that I think there is um, I mean each year the past few years we have had um, one maybe two uh, students from underrepresented groups this is the term this is the academic term by the way it's called the URM a URM fellowship underrepresented minority um, okay. Um, and now we have a writer from Pakistan. Now we have, um, a writer who's Latinx. We have an African-American writer who's starting in the fall. Um, you know, so a program of 12 students, um, you know, roughly 25, 30%. It's not too bad, but I would like to do better. And I guess it's kind of an open question what the fall is going to look like, as you were saying. Yeah, we're all, we've all been charged with um, going through every course that we teach and saying whether it can be done in person in a socially distanced way or done as a hybrid mm-hmm. with some class meet, in person class meetings and some over Zoom, or whether it should just stay online, like, you know theater history, theater and society, because you can't really socially distance those those rooms. 
You know, um, in um, San Francisco in New York, what they started to do in parks is just draw big circles. This is my space. Oh, really? Oh. Yeah. So, so maybe uh, you guys could use the lawn and draw big circles. We might do that. Well, for like, like one month until it starts snowing. Snowing. Do, do <laughs> yeah. Cla- yeah. Do classes outside as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I don't know. You know, the Board of Regents and the and the university is saying we're going to be back. Um, that's the official word, right? Mm. That we're going to be back. But being back means a lot of contingency plans. And I can only assume that, you know, there's been talk of a second wave. Yeah. Which they think is going to happen later in the fall. But if anything like that were to happen sooner, I would imagine we would just stay online. Yeah. Well, because the students are still living with each other and, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah, and I think a lot of students are very concerned about that. Right. Um, um, how is that going to work? So it's a little crazy. Um, um, I think one of the advantages of being in a, a collaborative department like theater is we actually work on these things together, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and that's been good. And I think we'll continue to will continue to serve serve us well in terms of getting going through this. Uh, um, I don't know what they do in the math department. But... <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, before we ask our last question, or before we get into glistens, um, mm-hmm. I get the opportunity to ask the final question. Lucky you. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so knowing that, you know, like, through your life and what you've seen and heard and learned, how would you define what it means to be artist in the 21st century? Especially now, like in this crazy time, but how would you define um, what it means? Hmm. <laughs> it's a tough one. It's a tough one. Is this one but... of the questions you sent me in advance and I didn't yes, think about? It's, it's on the list. It is on the list. I got hung up on the writer quest, the writers and plays question. Um, um, what is an artist? The thing that pops into my head is that an artist is somebody who makes or creates something that adds value to life Mm. and that value is not necessarily usually not financial (laughs) 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 it can be right you can make something that'll make a lot of money um, but that's not the primary thing the primary thing is what does it do in the world as something to experience, contemplate, discuss, feel something about. That's a very general definition. And it could go beyond the traditional arts to include other areas of, you know, creative, innovative thinking. And I think there is, you know, art and artistry in fields like software engineering. I know absolutely nothing about software engineering, but I just imagine that you need to have a little bit of an artistic spirit to be an innovator in a field like that. Um, But in terms of being a dedicated artist, living as an artist in our times, I think being dedicated to the work of making something that is 
of that that's of special value well to you first of all it has to be a special value to you but also you feel that what you're making is something that is going to be worthy of consideration by an audience of viewer um um and that it you know I don't want this to be like an art for art's sake answer because I don't think it's that. I'm not like, oh, you create the aesthetic experience, man, and <laughs> <laughs> and then we all have, you know, we all vibe to it. Um, <laughs> um, um, you know, I mean, if it's, mm. it could be that it just creates a, a a special aesthetic experience, but it could, you know, if the value is something like engaging social questions or provoking political ideas or um, things like that, then that's, that, that is as important as, as the, the art for art's sake part of it. So I'm still a little bit of the old modern modernist school of thinking about art being something that, that is self-justifying, you know, it doesn't have to be, um, it doesn't have to be uh, justified in terms of serving anything other than itself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the society that values that is a, is a, is a uh, I don't know, civilized society, <laughs> is a society worth living in. <laughs> um, civilized might not be the right word because um, that has connotations of, of something different. But... <laughs> Like, you know, we need to make art to be civilized. Um, <laughs> but um, but that it, that's the kind of world you want to live in, where yeah. it's, it's one where people make art for all kinds of reasons, including just for the aesthetic value it, it puts into the world. Yeah, yeah. And it's interesting, the whole economic question. Um, I don't think art can escape <laughs> economics um uh you know but i don't think it should be the primary consideration it's uh i wish we had ways of supporting artists better in our society you know which is why the the british theater in particular has always been of particular interest to me because of it's not i don't know if it's as true now as it was but there was a period where it was the reason they could do those plays in the 70s, like the Romans in Britain, was because they had the, the subsidy from the government yeah. to do it. And the theaters were able to take these writers who were fairly unknown and say, we'd like you to write something for us and we have these resources. And then you could write you know, these big, epic political plays <laughs> and not be worried about is it going to make any money? Yeah. Um, yeah. And but so I mean, it's just, that's a, just such a huge factor. It is. Um, at the same time, you know, um, I guess there's in, in the U.S. We have a lot of kind of individualistic. You got to make it on your own kind of philosophy. You know, you can't depend on the government handout. Uh, but the, the, the thing is that it's not a handout when, when, a, when a, a nation like, uh, the United Kingdom gives that kind of subsidy to a theater, they do it because they regard it as a cultural amenity. <laughs> you know, it's something, it's something right. that's, it's something that's important to the culture, the way we value public libraries. I've always been a little perplexed by the fact that our public libraries are so much better 
than public libraries in Britain. Have you ever been oh, to a public? I didn't li- know that. Ever been to a public library in London? Uh. <laughs> I mean, they're, no, no, they're 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 fine, but they're not quite at the same level. And part of that is because we channel money into our public. Li- I'm sure the people in the public library system feel they don't get enough money, but relatively oh, relatively speaking, that's like starting with Benjamin Franklin and coming to, coming down to the present. That's just been a, of a very high value in our society in general. Now, I'm sure there are parts of our society where, you know, I mean, I, I'm spoiled. I live in Coralville, Iowa, suburb of Iowa, the suburb of Iowa City. <laughs> and we have several really good public libraries just, you know, right here within a five mile radius. And I'm sure that's not the case in some places. Um, well, and I wonder too, um, the fact that in the UK, higher education is so much more accessible and affordable. And so maybe many people have access to, uh, you know, university libraries. That's true. And that's a, sh- and that's a shift too, because that wasn't the case, Oh, you know, up until the fifties, the, um, you couldn't really go to a university unless you were, uh, pretty, um, you know, you were a member of the upper class classes or upper middle class, because it was so Oxford, Cambridge dominated. But then through all the things that were going on after the war where they nationalized various industries and extended arts subsidy and so on, education benefited from that because they created the Open University and there were a lot of new universities that were founded. Um, so it did become more open and also affordable. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, I think we shall... Move into glistens now. You don't want to talk more about the educational system. I do. In I really do. But I, I feel like, unfortunately, I feel like we should move into glistens. Ah, glistens. Uh, so this is our our uh, at the end of every episode, we talk about something from the week that we enjoyed or learned about. Um, Sarah, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, so my glisten of the week uh, is okay. So I'm whenever I'm on the internet, I tend to scare myself a lot uh, with <laughs> whatever that's going on, including the pandemic. But one particular thing that really stood out to me um, that just really shook me are sinkholes. Um, <laughs> I saw this photo of a sinkhole i don't know i think it's somewhere in the middle east i don't know but an entire building just like disappeared into this giant sinkhole and then i went on this crazy internet research of sinkholes and i put this on i put this on my facebook and i've been getting so much feedback people are like what the heck is this you know and also people are coming up and like oh you know in florida there's a lot of sinkholes in florida <laughs> or like there's I thought there were a lot of them in california i thought so too true? i mean nick um my fiance art i have a fiance uh-huh. um, <laughs> <laughs> so he he said a few years ago in westwood where ucla is there was a sinkhole that like took down a car um hmm. And so, but yeah, I think there are sinkholes everywhere. And I just, now I have this now doing <laughs> that I'm just going to fall into a sinkhole one day. This is a glisten. <laughs> a glisten can be anything. Uh-huh. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's my, that's my glisten. Terrifying. 
Um, yeah. Okay, well, my listen is I just watched um, the American Shakespeare Center, which is in Virginia, is doing, um, mm. they're streaming a few uh-huh. of their shows that they were not able to tour because of the mm-hmm. pandemic. And so um, I watched their production of, well, they're calling it Imogen, but it's the play Cymbeline, <laughs> but they're calling it Imogen um, because their argument is that Imogen is the true protagonist of the play, not mm-hmm. Cymbeline. Um, and it's very good. They use three cameras. And so, um, you know, even though it's a, a film of film recording of a stage play, which mm-hmm. often does not go very well. Um, I really enjoyed it. I thought it, I thought it made really good use of um, this kind of strange format and um I think they have a couple other plays that they're streaming as well. So hmm. highly recommend it. Hmm. How I about you, Art? Well, I've been, uh, there's so much of this streaming theater that I've, I've been wanting to engage in. Um, and this is not exactly my glisten, but um, Alan McVeigh sent out an email to everyone saying, you must see The Encounter. Simon, oh, Mc, right. Simon McBird, yeah. McBurdy's piece with Complicite, which is streaming. And then also I, we received an email from uh, Jen Buckley in the English department saying the Berliner Ensemble for the first time like ever is making its 1957 Brecht directed production of Mother Courage available um, to watch on the Berliner Ensemble site. And although it's entirely in German, if you know the, if you know the play, you can still appreciate um the staging of it so that's uh those are two things that are in my list of things to to watch um but mike listen it's going to sound like i'm sucking up to my students by saying this but uh, <laughs> um i was immersed in uh reading final exams for the postmodern course on monday and tuesday of this past week mm-hmm. And I give them uh, an essay question, <clears throat> which is traditionally a take-home exam, but now we call it a stay-home exam. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you for laughing at that. <laughs> um, <laughs> basically, you know, we spend um, a chunk of the course looking at modern, the modernist avant-garde, the, all of this movements like surrealism, Dada, expressionism. And then we look at American avant-garde groups, starting with the Living Theater onward, Worcester Group, directors, and Bogart. Um, and then the final section of the course is a series of plays that they do group presentations on. Um, and they did really great group presentations using the resources of the internet. Um, they, they chose not to do them live over Zoom, but to record them. Mm-hmm. which I think was a good choice because it was a way that they could do them individually, but together, if you know what I mean, because they could mm-hmm. do their parts and yeah. Um, anyway, this is the final question. The question on the exam is to choose two of the plays from the last part of the course and to discuss them in terms of the question of whether postmodernism as a concept is a useful tool for interpreting what the plays are about um, and I was just very, very um, struck, as I had been with these presentations that they did. Also, as part of the online experience, 
one of the things that got added that wouldn't have existed before was they were doing discussion boards um, where they were responding to both my lectures and each other's presentations. And some folks were writing really extensive commentaries and engaging with the work in a way that they couldn't have in the classroom in a strange sort of That's way. So because, cool. Yeah. So all of that leads up to just, I mean, the I'm taking the exam as the glisten, just reading through all of those and feeling really, you know, excited by the kinds of ideas people are engaging with and, and, um, most people are saying, yeah, postmodernism does help, but <laughs> people are getting, they're getting tired of the term postmodernism. I don't blame them. Uh, the one or two are like, I hope I never hear the term postmodernism again for as long as I live. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but still in general, just the level of, uh, engagement with, kind of the theory on the one hand and looking at the plays in detail and it coming from, you know, we've got all kinds of people in the class, actors, directors, designers, stage managers, as well as playwrights, dramaturgs, um, and getting that kind of level of engagement from everyone consistently. Um, Although I have been accused of lecturing mainly to the playwrights and dramaturgs, <laughs> which I don't think is true. No. I mean... um, but but um, anyway, you know, I think just everyone has been, there was a consistent sort of uh, engagement with the question. And um, yeah, does this help us understand, not only understand these plays, but also, and the plays, by the way, they start with like Shepard and Fornes. Um, and they go up to um, you know, Jackie Sibley's jury. Um, so some very recent stuff. Not only kind of looking at the plays seriously, but just engaging with what does this mean for me as a theater artist? You kind of feel that in the subtext. So that was my glisten. Oh, that's so beautiful. That and the fact that I gave a lot of A's. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just think, I mean, I, I think everyone should be getting A's, honestly. I, mean, I think everybody should be getting S's and past grades, yes, grades actually, especially this semester. But, yeah. um, and they, they did give the students that option, by the way. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Well. And then, of course, talking to you all has been a good <laughs> <laughs> this has been the highlight of my week for sure. Yeah, definitely. Well, so I hope it was. I hope it's uh, cohesive enough. I know there's a bit of rambling going on. It's in like there. a master class <laughs> in dramaturgy. Yeah. Thank you, Art. Thank you for just well, taking you. the time and sharing your life story and your experience. Oh man, it was. It's amazing. It was amazing. Well, it's really great to reconnect with both of you. And um, and I was aware of this podcast. I think I had dipped into it once or twice. And I haven't, I have to confess, I have not been a dedicated listener. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> okay. 
<laughs> I was telling my, <laughs> telling my daughter about it. She was saying, oh, do they have like a following? I said, I don't really know. So she looked it up and she found, I guess you have a Facebook page. And she said, yeah, they have a pretty good following actually, but it's probably a, it's probably a specialty thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think that it, it's a playwriting podcast. They're not going to get, you know, millions of subscribers, but well, you never know. <laughs> Listeners, if you're out there hearing right, this, sorry, I don't mean to be you discouraging. Know, <laughs> you know what you need to do, which is uh, share us and review us yeah. and uh, stay tuned. And, and, and make us more than a specialty. <laughs> Tell all yeah, your I, non-theater I, friends about Packet Speed. Uh, I didn't mean to put you in a corner that way. <laughs> no, this, not this at was all. My, this was my not sorry, sorry effort to say I'm. I'm going to start listening now. <laughs> we had a, actually we had a number of um, Iowa grads on who mm-hmm. you know. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, well, well, cool. that's well, the end of so another much. episode. Okay. <laughs>